Oh, hey there, listeners and juicers. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to let you know that if you have fallen in love with the Draw Your Dice podcast and want to help put some new fruit on the table, but don't feel comfortable making a monthly commitment, well, you can support the show via the ACAST supporter feature. No gift too large, nor too small. Just click on the link in the show description and know that I am sending you the strongest hug when you do so. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. You will be celebrated for every piece of contribution that you make, and your friends will get a chance to see what you made and also experience what you made when it gets worked into the plot line. And because of that, there's immediate ownership, immediate agency, and joy. And you get kids who, you know, they come into the class and they're like, well, I don't like writing. 
And by the end of the class, you know, they've in for each class, they're writing three pages and their parents are like, yeah, I had to, I had to get them off the computer to stop them from writing. My name is Jeremy Gage and welcome to the Draw Your Dice podcast. This is an educational show involving all things tabletop role-playing industry. Listen alongside me as we hear from creators, entrepreneurs, and supporters about their personal best practices, principles, and philosophies. I encourage anyone from the budding game designer to a seasoned publisher everyone in between to sit down with us and enjoy today's episode. Hello, everyone. Thank you for coming to the Draw Your Dice podcast. My name is Jeremy Gage, as you heard in the intro. But as always, the show is never about me. It is about who I have brought to you today and who I have brought to you today. Today's guest I've brought to you today is a English and master's teacher, is a parent, is a storyteller, is a game designer focused on Nonviolent conflict revolution. Uh, revolution. <laughs> non-conflict. Well, let's all hope for nonviolent revolutions in the future. But nonviolent conflict resolutions, collaboration, and critical thinking. I would like to welcome to the show Michael Lowe. Hey! <sighs> wow i got i got the I got the breath the breath cheer. I'm excited. Yeah. No. Amen to it's nonviolent classic. revolution. Also academics. That's actually one of the huge focuses of what I do is trying to get kids to learn through role-playing games and being sort of floored by the potential educationally of role-playing games, what they can help kids learn to do with joy. So yeah, thank you so much for having me on your show. Yeah, of course. Michael, would you just give a brief introduction of who you are, how you present yourself to the internet? So just in case folks don't know who you are and feel free to include any links or resources so that people don't have to go searching into the episode to find out more about you. Yeah, absolutely. Luckoflegends.com is the easiest place to find me. So luck, just like you'd think, and legends, just like you'd think, with an of in the middle. So that's the site where I teach. I go by he, him pronouns. My name is Michael. I've been teaching for, gosh... Over 20 years, mostly in high school, but I've taught at all age ranges for private companies and after school programs. Mostly my career has been in the public high school classroom, however. And uh, I'm an English language arts teacher, which basically means I'm a nerd for all things, all things book. And uh, yeah, I'm also a game designer. And recently I've been working on Stories RPG, and you can find that at storiesrpg.com, which is a monthly chapter release of a game that teaches you to play with kids in your life if you're a guardian or you're just lucky enough to have kids in your life as you go. Choose your own adventure elements to it. It's got read-alouds to it and it's got coloring pages and it has a parallel storyline that is being produced by the amazing team at storiespodcast.com, which is one of the largest and longest running kids storybook podcasts on the internet. And so the cool thing is you can listen to the episodes, kind of learn how the game works from there, and then print off the first chapter and away you go. And it's uh, it's full of amazing, you know, the, the story arc's called Star Sworn. So it's full of stars falling from the sky, amazing magical powers, wondrous beasts, and all the other good stuff you'd, you'd hope you could get up to if your imagination were completely unconstrained. I, I, I love it. I had the opportunity to read uh, Star Sworn Chapter One, which we'll probably get into a little bit later, but I love it. I th- like I was saying off air to Michael for those who are listening. Uh, I talked about how we've had some people touch on. We've had people like Riley Rethel and Jay Dragon who have been camp counselors for a number of summers 
for kids and using RPG techniques to help get them engaged or teach them things, uh, moral lessons and stuff like that, critical thinking exercises. But I think you'll be the first guest of the show that really has like a major education background, works in the sector, and uses that as a focus for game design as well, especially when it comes to engaging children in play and academic skills and critical thinking, mental modeling. I'm obsessed with Yeah, so like why? The big question is why. Oh, wow. Okay, (laughs) well, you can go look up. If anybody's listening, you can go look. If you want to read things I wrote, I have blogs about this, but there's a huge number of reasons that role-playing games are transformative. And when I started using them to teach academic writing skills, I was kind of floored. I sort of facepalmed. I I felt like a fool. I just wanted to say this before it went by. I am absolutely um, a huge fan of J-Dragons and Wander Home is one of my absolute rock star favorite TTRPGs out there. So just wanted to give that shout out now because I think it's a brilliant example of what's possible in design. So yeah, academically, there are several things that teachers desperately try to engineer in the classroom that role-playing games are already designed to help foster. So example, people spend so much effort on classroom culture. How do you create a learning environment where kids trust each other? Because you can't learn if you can't be vulnerable. If you don't trust someone and if you don't feel safe, you are not going to learn. You're not going to be able to engage. How do you create an environment where everyone not only trusts one another and you as an authority to to help things move forward in the room, how do you create an environment where everyone is actively, emotionally engaged in the same project? So I don't know, my classic question I like to ask people is think about the last group project from school that you can remember. Try that out. All right, I'm thinking about it. Never went well. Yeah, so (laughs) I mean, that's really, I mean, I could have asked a follow-up question, but you already got to the punchline. Yeah, it never does. (laughs) And there's a really strong reason for that. And one thing I did when I was in the classroom was I removed any kind of graded group work and instead incentivized collaboration in a lot of other ways. In a role-playing game, that classroom culture gets built from day one. Kids get to collaborate on collective problems, and because they're emotionally engaged with their characters and the world, it's very quick for them to care about solving that problem and try to look to work together to solve it. And I have some mechanical tricks I use in my design to really build that sense of we're facing a problem together. How can we leverage everyone's abilities? How can everyone posse up and and really find ways to help each other figure out solutions? But the bottom line is, You have emotionally engaging, sometimes tense situations, which kids need to rely on one another to overcome. And it can very shortly create very powerful classroom culture that is highly collaborative and celebratory. Kids start trusting each other because, hey, you know, when things went down, Everybody, everybody was in, in real trouble, but then, you know, dark eye, he was, he was able to, he was able to figure out how to make friends with the Zion who was really ferocious and boy, that really saved a slim C's bacon. Those types of interactions feel very real. Anybody who's role played knows how intensely real and how those sort of stories of what happened at the table become really formative for friendships. So, you know, I work with in my classes online, Kids from about seven to 13, mixed age groups, which are great because that gives kids lots to look look up to and to look out for. 
You know, older kids love looking out for younger kids. Younger kids love looking up to older kids. And one of the things that's really powerful that happens in almost every session is kids don't want to leave. After even the first class, they want to stay online for the after party. And they will spend an hour or more just riffing on story ideas, reading each other's stories, generating things for the next session. And that's something that, you know, if you're running a great classroom, you know, kids will stay after because they love it there because it's an environment where they're safe and where exciting things happen, where they learn, where they connect. And creating that in an online space can be very difficult. And the fact that role-playing games can do that in the virtual space, to me, suggests their immense power for every educational context. I absolutely beautiful soliloquy here. There are some things that that you definitely talked about that that I want to touch on, especially as they relate to, I have certain intuitions about like the current state of, or not the current state, but the traditional like education models that come from the industrial revolution and stuff and other like, and in my own game designs, one of the big ones that I think is really fascinating is looking at how in typical adventure stories, I come from more of like a trad lens of like, you know, D and D Pathfinder, 13th age, stuff like that. And I am trying to design a game that focuses more on like, how is the party doing versus how is the individual yes. sort of like collective yes. scene work, I guess is, is a less nuanced term for it. I think it's really cool that, that you're sort of like coming from the gate of like, we have to be a combined social effort to make something greater than the sum of its parts. Right. Like, that, yeah. that sort of like trad cliche is saying, I, I love that energy. And it's something like I want to do, I don't, I believe that star sworn and we'll get into it a little bit later, but has some like forged in the dark inspiration. Thing, it it does. And so. actually I, I will mention here. So I don't know if you're familiar with Jeremy Strandberg's stone top campaign that went down last year. No, it's a, it's, it's a game which is very PBTA forged in the dark inspired. It's, it's brilliant. It's very invested. It was a pretty big Kickstarter and it was, it's about a community stone and the heroes sort of have that as their base. And as part of play, you kind of build that community, connect to the characters, create stories in that community. And that inspired my, my partner and I, Mo Poplar at Ashy Feet Games. We're mm-hmm. working on an we're going to release in the spring a game called Holdfast Station. And the beta playtest of that mm-hmm. is up on my itch page, which is Luck of Legends on itch. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's all about how you create community. And in, in Holdfast, mm-hmm. you are a community living on an asteroid mine in the far reaches of space. And so mm-hmm. the goal was to create a game in which, one, you were blue collar folks. You weren't dealing with, you know, the classic concept of heroism, which I find problematic to begin with. You were dealing with sort of everyday work and living, but also an environment in which you had to rely on one another and figure out how to navigate even difficult decisions and interactions because you didn't have the option to run off and you didn't have the option to hurt people. You needed everyone. And so Mm -hmm. I'm very committed to games. You know, I'll be honest. I think we've got plenty of games that teach you that you can run away from or hurt your problems. I think mm-hmm. we could all use a lot more fiction where we discuss the the complicated, nuanced, and fascinating business of creating, maintaining, sustaining 
community. And that's what Holdfast is about. And that's what, you know, the work that I do in my, my classes is about. Mm-hmm. I love it. I think it's wicked cool. And the other thing that you, that really adds that is the building the trust at the table. I feel like, you know, we, there's so, there's so much Twitter discourse or maybe not discourse, but conversation around who and who does not feel welcome at a, at any particular yeah. table. Mm-hmm. And like from the rip, like before even like a word has been spoken, yep. people will sort of like look at a convention table and be like, Ooh, that's not for me. Yep. Right. Like, and you know, that's to me personally, that's a little disheartening that like, there's no opportunity for even the chance for trust, like trust building stops at site, which is kind of crazy to me, but you know, warranted in a lot of, in a lot of ways. I'm not disregarding anyone's experience that mm. like they are protecting themselves after a number of burns or are felled bridges. Right. So, well, I'll be, I'll be uh, honest. I think, you know, think of it from a classroom perspective. And I think as a teacher mm-hmm. and also as a, a designer, I found that there's huge overlap in those two spaces. I think any teacher who's been in the the career for, you know, a decade or two and and cares deeply about what they do and is trying to do it right is already an excellent game designer because that's what we do. We do experience design. If you think about classrooms, mm-hmm. there are classes where in a number of ways if you're not careful, you've created an environment or a message about your class that is already going to tell some kids that they're not welcome. You don't want to communicate that message, right? It's not your intention, but because you haven't thought about what affects them and what, what invites them to the room or what might, you know, tell them that they're not welcome, you have already set up an emotional, let's, let's call it like a emotional background noise for those kids. Mm -hmm. So they walk into the room and if they've had bad experiences in an English classroom, they're already struggling. You know, they're walking into English and going, oh boy, I don't want to do this, right? I have preconceived notions about what it's going to be, and I know it's not for me, and this is going to be awful. So how do you invite yeah. them? How do you break those expectations down? How do you make them feel explicitly and implicitly welcome to the conversation in the table? So an example is, you know, in my classes, there is no, you don't sign up for a particular game world. They vote on day one. And I give them, oh gosh, at this point, I think I have eight different games (laughs) that I have set up. So, you know, do you want to play in Beast Preservation Corps and go on missions as magical scholars to help conserve magical creatures and and rebalance them and get them living well in their habitat despite human use of magic? Or do you want to go to RimWorld Researchers and go to the far reaches of space and find new, new planets and explore them? Or... Are you into metahuman heroes or monster high school? Do you want to be freshman in a monster high school? So there's a lot, you know, there's so many things in the zeitgeist for you to play with, right? And Mm -hmm. so we begin with that vote. And that's an explicit way for me to say, all right, everybody here is welcome. And we don't vote. You you don't get one vote. You vote for as many games as you're into. So after I've done the pitch for each game, everybody votes for, you know, three or four games out of the eight. Which means by the time we choose one, it's one almost everyone's voted. Usually it's one that everyone has voted for. And even if there's one holdout, we'll chat about it. I'll say, are you, you know, can you deal with this game? And we'll let people persuade each other and chat it through, which is a strategy mm-hmm. that I think is really crucial because it's, I, I always tell them, I say, we're not a majority wins table. This is a game for everyone. So until we all agree that a thing is what we want to do, we need to chat about it. And kids are much more sensible than adults. They, they're, they're pretty quick to be like, yeah, you know what? I like that game. Fine, let's go. Or they'll be like, you know what? 
they really care about this game. Let's let them have it. And boom, because they're in it to win it. You know, they're not there to not have a good time. They want to. Mm-hmm. And as long as you make it clear that that's what you're there to do, they're they're willing to commit full in. I love that. I think that's a really interesting like facilitation tactic too for even adult style games. There's every once in a while I watch Matt Coville's running the game. Mm. One of my favorite episodes that he's done is the campaign pitch, where if you have a couple of ideas as the GM, yeah, you kind of present a document to everyone and say like, hey, who wants to do which one, right? Yeah. And often we've left it to majority vote in the past, but I think it is better to be like, hey, until it's unanimous, like we're not, we can't start anything. So I think it's, it can get people like on the same track. Or if you have the person who does what the second kid did in the sense, you know what, they really want to play it. And I'm kind of indifferent about all of these. Let's let, let's do the one that let's roll. they want to do. Yeah. Yeah. I think what also that'll signal in the future is like, they're also okay with like helping that person build the best character that they can build. Right. Like as the, as it goes on, like, Oh, I know that Sarah really cares about this game and the character that they're going to create. So I will help facilitate that person sort of like on a subconscious level, which I find really, or it has the potential to be that. Yeah. Well, it just establishes those bonds of trust, even from the beginning decision. I mean, that's something I carried over from my classroom. I I have an entirely student centered classroom when I'm in the classroom on from day one, students are voting on the units they wish to study. And if there is something Mm -hmm. they want to study and they're passionate about, I will make a unit. If it is something that a large enough majority and everybody's really serious about it, I always warn them it's more work when we make a new unit. But but the the key there is I think it does require a particular kind of approach and this is something I've noticed in the in the design community there's this sort of ascendant idea of the the storyteller as this as this sort of performative role. And I think that comes mm-hmm. very much from actual plays which are great. They've welcomed people into the hobby and that's amazing. But they've created this expectation that being the storyteller is this, it's, it's, like a, it's like an art performance, right? And you've got people talking about being nervous about running their games instead of being a facilitator. So as a teacher, I will say that I look at myself as a learner. I'm not there mm-hmm. to tell you what to do. I'm not an authority. I'm not your boss. I can be your mentor. I can be your coach. I can be your facilitator. I can be your MC if everybody in the room is ready mm-hmm. to, to get down. But, but I'm going to play those roles based on what you need, and it'll be a discussion because we're all in this together. I'm a part of the classroom as much as you are, and it's your room, mm-hmm. not mine. I don't, nobody's got mm-hmm. ownership. It's collective. And so yeah. creating, I think for me as a designer, creating games where you are actively scaffolded through being more improvisational and open to inviting players to the process of generating story is something I'm sort of obsessed with. So Star Sworn <laughs> is, yeah, Star Sworn's, you know, Star Sworn teaches you the system as you play and it gives mm-hmm. you sort of set encounters and, and moments that you can play through. Holdfast is, is very open, but it's a script. It gives you, you know, ask people these questions. Mm-hmm. And it'll help you set the scene, but you generate the problems as you play. So it's zero prep. You don't need anything to sit down at the table. You just sit down with the document, pop it open, and go. And I am very interested in liberating story games from from that sort of need for prep because very often that's what that kind of pressure is what can lead to a lot of mistakes at the table and a lot of 
of, of inabilities to connect your team. Cause you know, you made this thing and, and, and they want to change it. And now it feels sort of personal. And in reality, it should be something you share every step of the way, but that can be a lot. And it takes a lot of developed skills to learn how to do it. So if I, as a designer can help people bridge that gap, that's my goal. Well, one of them anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think this also like on the adult end of the spectrum, just as like a connection point, it's like how railroading gets like a really bad rap. Like Mm. it's a terrible thing to be doing as a GM. And I think that, you know, when you're running adventures, like pre-written scenarios or something like that, what I really, what I really found attractive about Star Sworn, it uh, reminded me of an RPG, an MMORPG I played called Guild Wars, Hmm. Guild Wars 2 specifically. And in different story moments, you get one of three options based on like three personality traits they provide in the game, which don't really like leverage anything mechanically. It's just sort of different dialogue pieces. One is like charming the NPC. One is ferocity, sort of like an aggression or like won't this back is, down. This is in Guild team. Wars, yes? Not not in Star yes, Wars. Okay, I was, just, I was just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. I was like, whoa, whoa, I don't remember any of this. Okay, got you. Yeah, yeah. no, no. Okay. These are in Guild Wars 2. And then the third one is dignity, like honor and dignity. Mm. So you sort of come from like a nice noble kind mm. of set. But anyways, it's interesting that because in Star Sworn, you provide the five moves. One of them, I don't have it open, but get physical. Influence. Um, influence, yes. Figure it out. Yes, you made, you made it. <laughs> I did. It's, it's almost like I knew. Yeah, no, I, I, those are the moves that I usually use with my kids too. And cast yeah. a spell if you want to get creative. But yeah, yep. and I think the goal for me is always to present a range of options so that kids have ways to think through the problem and they're invited to be as creative as they'd like. So if you mm. want to chat, with the raging dragon, you absolutely may. There's a there's a, mm-hmm. a move for that. If you would like to jump on their back and try to ride them, you can do that too. It depends on how you would like to approach the problem. And I think yeah. setting the table as a designer with a lot of options and no straight direction towards combat is really crucial. A lot of people talk about mm-hmm. D D, and there's been a lot of uh, you know a lot of really positive uh, moves by folks who are working with D D and emotional health. For me, as a designer, I look at D&D and I say, listen, if you tell people that they got a lot of hammers, they're going to look for a lot of nails. And I'm Mm -hmm. not raising my, you know, personally as a teacher, I have a lot of commitment to the idea that I want to help kids learn to solve problems in the real world. And in the real world, if you punch problems, it creates cycles of violence. And if you run a game where almost everything says your, your character has a lot of abilities that allow them to beat people up. You will, you will have a lot of kids jumping in and you know, they've been taught by video games as well. And we've got a huge, this is definitely not something that's unique to uh, any game. It's very much in our culture, right? We have a huge Mm -hmm. literature of heroism is when you, you find someone who is guilty of causing problems and you hurt them until they stop. And that Mm -hmm. to me is not heroic. That is cycles of violence and cycles of oppression. And so when I was, whenever I design, I'm looking to create lots of invitations to think creatively and thoughtfully about how to actually solve problems rather than perpetuate them or cause them to cycle again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that what I love about 
Star Sworn chapter one, at least for what I've read, mm. is that you found like this is kind of touching on both of these, the railroad and like sort of offering options that are non-violent mm. sequiturs, in that you present situations that the teller, the GM, mm-hmm. reads throughout the adventure mm-hmm. and you sort of like tell them like, hey, these are sort of like the two options sort of present here. And we also talk a lot on, at least last year, we talked a lot about onboarding for new mm. players, for new GMs, yeah. for new storytellers, right? For new facilitators. Yes. And I love that you sort of present the, these are the options that are possible here. And I don't think you pigeonhole the teller to be like, don't accept any other answer, but it's nice that you provide those tools for them. Like if they're an older sibling, right? Mm-hmm. Like it may not necessarily be a parent who's running Star Wars. Exactly. Like someone in their teens who are running it for their kid bro- kid siblings or something like yep. that, or some friends. They need to be able to parse out how to potentially facilitate or improvise a game on a no prep level. And then that can, they can sort of like work their own bell curve. Yeah. Of, okay. I've played enough of like games that sort of hold my hand or done enough stories that hold my hand. I'd like to sort of like create my own thing, but they're coming from a leverage point of this game taught me that like not all solutions are swords and fireballs. It's uh, conversation collaboration and uh, problem solving with sort of like a real world lens through it. Right. Yeah. Uh, we can't in the real world, sword and fireball all of our problems away. Well, so it's very interesting. You mentioned that and it's, it's you know, one common thing that I've found in the community of people who who use role-playing games with kids is they'll say very quickly, like, yeah, but kids want to wanna fight. And I said, well, actually, you, have you offered them other alternatives? And they look at me kind of mm-hmm. oddly. And I'm like, well, here's the thing. You, you can say that, but if you create a game that says you're a fighter and, and, and the way you solve problems is hurting them. And we're on an adventure to kill monsters and accumulate treasure. Then you've kind of already told them what you're doing. Right. And of course they're going to do it because that's a, you know, that's a game that a lot of people want to play and that's wonderful and fine. But if you also tell them, you know, one conversation I have with a lot of kids is, uh, and this is a quick one, you know, the first time somebody's like, okay, I want to punch him or I want to shoot him. I say, well, okay. Have you ever like, just to stop for a second, because you want to model your safety tools, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I say, okay, I'm going to hit the pause button for a second, and I want to ask everyone a question. Have you ever seen violence in your personal life? Have you ever had a moment? You don't have to explain it to me. You don't have to say anything, but I want you to think about a time you saw somebody hurt someone else, and they're immediately pained face. And some kids will look a little blank, and I'll say, well, did it solve a problem or cause one? And everybody has this moment, you know. <laughs> couple kids will go, Oh man, things got so much worse. And, and I'll say, Mm -hmm. yeah. So, so here's the thing. We're telling a story and we get to decide what that story feels like and how it acts. I'm going to tell you that as a storyteller, I, I am going to make sure that, that that the story is, is fair and honest and true. And so I'm going to try to make sure that we have reactions that make sense. And I'm going to try to, to create a story that's comfortable for everyone, but also has, has some feeling of, of solidity to it. So if you did this, so I'll give you an example. We had a Beast Preservation Corps game, and the researchers were tramping across some fields in a uh, in an area where there were some some farmers. They were tracking the migration route of the jackalopes, which was created by one of the kids because, 
everything in my games is created by the kids. They, they write everything and that's, that's where the joy comes from. And that's why yeah. we get so much academic gain. They get to tell me where they want to go. They get to tell me the creatures they're going to find there. They get to tell me all the, the people who live in the community. I, I love it. So they were tramping through and some farmers got upset that they had crossed some fences and they had these giant magical beast companions who, of course, you know, they designed these giant magical beasts. And then they were like, oh, wow. Yeah, no. That's not exactly diplomatic with the locals when you go running through their fields with an enormous winged ice phoenix flying directly overhead. <laughs> they might get nervous. So, you know, some knights came through to sort of defend the lands and to halt. What are you doing? And one of them was like, well, I want to freeze them. And I said, all right, let's say you freeze them and you're not killing them, right? This is officially nonviolent. Let's mm-hmm. let's look at this from their perspective. Did you guys tell them you were going to come through their fields? They all kind of looked at each other like, no. I'm like, yep. I'm like, so you just showed up with a bunch of giant magical beasts and walked through their fields. And when they showed up to try to tell you off, you froze them. How do you think they might react? And they thought through that. And I was like, remember the first rule of the Beast Preservation Corps, and I build this into my lore every time, is all life is sacred. Mm -hmm. You guys just came from Sanctuary, which is supposed to be this peaceful place where you restore creatures. And this would be perceived as an act of war. You might actually be creating a serious problem that's lasting between sanctuary and these, and these folks in this land. Are you guys cool with that? And they all kind of went, woof. And the kid who did it originally is like, yeah, no, I don't want to do that. Let's think this through. Mm-hmm. And they all started, yeah. you know, they all started workshopping. So it's really about having that conversation. And I think that's really crucial. And that doesn't mean that there aren't consequences to actions. It just means you get to, you get to navigate what those consequences look like. Mm-hmm. There's there's an interesting video. I don't know any trappings about stoicism, but the one that I watched about uh, a couple that I watched about stoicism, I love the energy of like chasing the logic of a thing down of like any action or any like sort of thought process. And and this also ties into like where I think I I stand on like thoughts of education as mm. far as like as it's moving to a more modern place in that I love that you have inspired a state of the children are in charge, essentially, mm-hmm. uh, in charge of their learning, in charge of their experiences, but being a figure who understands that at the end of the day, they don't have the totality of world experience. Like we have seen what happens when someone just comes marching in and making demands of people. And you're able to ask a question that lets them have that or, or, or shares that experience with them, not in a way of like, don't do this, but like, let's look what would happen if you did this, right? Like what is, what is the guiding path? What is going to be the future result of your, of your choices here? And they can sort of like rework that. And that's going to translate, or we hope that that will translate to their, realize, well, they're getting situations where, you know, who knows, they may get into a bar fight 20 years from now and remember the moment of Ooh, the ice not. phoenix. And be like, <laughs> no, no, but I'm saying. Yeah, that, no, I get you. you know, yeah. No, yeah. I, someone gets really aggressive on them. Like, hey, buddy, you know, we could do this song and dance, but I'm going to rework my ice phoenix here. <laughs> my 23 year old self yeah. drinking up the Heineken or something. Well, yeah. And I think, yeah, there's, there's a lot of opportunity there for just giving them a safe, a safe arena in which to explore situations that are tense. 
Yeah. And I, I have some mechanics in the game I run online that allow me to ratchet up tension and create collaborative moments. You can see more on the blog. I like that you mentioned in Star Sworn, I was, I really focused there since it's print and play on keeping each mm. page as a standalone that either has a, a read aloud to say, intensify the engagement by reading this aloud and getting into the scene or a simple breakdown of what does a scene look like? So there are those three phases, mm-hmm. right? And phase the, the first set is explore the scene. And that gives you hints and tips and tricks on stuff that might happen that you as a storyteller could use to, to let, let kids explore and, and questions you can ask your players to get them to generate. And then the second piece is, you know, what moves can you make to solve the problem? And the third section is, what are some good things and bad things that could happen as a result of your roles? And it, it isn't uh, prescriptive at all. It's, you know, use any move that makes sense, but here are some suggestions for things if you're struggling. And mm-hmm. I think really cultivating that approach gives ownership. And ownership for me, you know, you mentioned putting kids at the center. Anybody you meet who is passionate and has mastered an arena, I feel like they all have one thing in common. They've had a learning experience where they owned that, that particular skill set where they, it mm-hmm. belonged to them, where they did something that felt new, uh, that felt original, that felt powerful. And because they had that experience, you know, they were the only kid in class who, you know, they made a particular artwork that they felt really proud of, or they, you know, they, they wrote a paper and they got, they got an A on a paper that was, you know, really a struggle for a lot of kids, or it was a very original piece of research and they really pushed themselves Ownership creates agency and agency creates commitment. Once you have that feeling of this is my learning, I did this, it creates a deep bond to that particular skill set. So in my writing classes, that's the goal. You wrote this world and you get to live in it. Anything you write is going to be read aloud and celebrated. Will we edit it along the way? Of course we will. Will you get some (laughs) academic feedback at the end of the course that's qualitative sent to your parents about your grade level success at different common core standards? Yes, you will. Will you ever be exposed to the process of being judged? Absolutely not. You will be celebrated for every piece of contribution that you make and your friends will get a chance to see what you made and also experience what you made when it gets worked into the plot line. And because of that, there's immediate ownership, immediate agency, and joy. And you get kids who, you know, they come into the class and they're like, well, I don't like writing. And by the end of the class, you know, they've, in, for each class, they're writing three pages and their parents are like, yeah, I had to, I had to get them off the computer to stop them from writing, which I don't, <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I've never had to do before because there is a direct, powerful incentive that's both social and personal in generating those works. And so that to mm-hmm. me as an educator, boy, creating those types of situations is what it's all about. I've had lots of kids. It's the other part that I love about doing what I do. I've been using Google slides and Google sheets, and I'm about to put a blog post out on how I use Google slides. It's been kind of really earth shattering for me as an educator. <laughs> they have these shared Google slides decks that they generate their stories in and they also get to, of course, shop for art, right? On the web. Yeah. And that's that's so critical to immersion for so many kids. And so by by getting to shop and find, you know, this is my this is what my spaceship is gonna look like, and this is my beast, and here's my character, and they can see each other's work 
and they can, they can read each other's work. And, you know, by the time they get to class, they're reading each other's slides, commenting on them. They all have, they've worked each other's stories into their own. So they'll be riffing off each other's ideas. And then the best is, you know, I have kids generating their own slide decks and making their own games. So, you know, I give them all the rules, slides, how to make moves, how to, how to run a drama clock, all that good stuff. And, you know, we had a kid write a, a game on the Warriors, which is that series about cats living in tribes. We had another who did a Yellowstone National Park game where you played as animals during the ecological consequences of losing the wolves who were struggling to try to bring wolves back, even though some of them were prey animals. So the fact that kids ultimately own the game to such an extent that they're not generating material for the, the setting that you know has been established – but they're creating their own settings. They're creating their own games. They're creating their own worlds and feel the agency to do that. To me as an educator, that's a huge sign that I'm, I'm in the right direction. It's sorry. Honestly, I, it's, no, <laughs> I get really excited good. and I jump up and down a lot. You can always feel free to say stop, but uh, you know, this is no. what I love to do. You know, I get very worked up. No, this show loves it when the when the guest just takes over and I just kind of hang out and get to learn and listen. <laughs> I apologize. Um, no, no apologies necessary, honestly. You know, Michael, how you know, one one thing I sort of skipped over in the beginning mm-hmm. of this that I think might be useful is what has been your sort of touchstones for being an RPG player, game designer, like how did you how did you come to this critical mass of use critical mass of using RPGs to delineate sort of or distill concepts of like academia and real world mental modeling? Like what were your some games you started playing? What was like the one that got you to start designing or think about design? Okay. I had a conversation with a buddy of mine, Sean Dove. He's at, at and thank you for flying.com. He's a He's a graphic designer and an illustrator. He's an amazing artist. He's worked on like Transformers and GI Joe and all this cool stuff. He's my uh, he's my art goal. If I ever get to do a tabletop with art for kids in it, I, I want to hire Sean. He's amazing. So he mentioned this to me. He said, "Oh yeah, like I, I mentioned to him that I I have a game out called Minifig Madness, which is just a little one pager, but it's about how I used at a regular table Lego minifigures." to help people generate characters. So if I sit down with a batch of kids in real life, I'll throw down a bunch of minifig parts and say, build yourself a person, build yourself a character. And at the end, we'll talk about how to mechanize the story that that character's visual elements tell. Because I think there's a strong element of visual storytelling in lots of role-playing games. And I was mentioning this to him and he said, oh yeah, I remember playing Lego battle in your house where we made all those Lego vehicles and we blew parts off each other and scavenged them. And I was like, Oh yeah, I remember making that game. And he said, you made that game. And I said, yeah. And he said, I thought that was a real game. And I was like, well, well it was. (laughs) So I guess I started (laughs) building games really from the second I started playing them. So, you know, I, I played, of course I'm 42. So I started with Dungeons and Dragons like everybody else. In my teen mm-hmm. years, I was really into Palladium. I played a lot of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Um, I still, out of all my books on the shelves, I still have Transdimensional TMNT, Mutants in Orbit. I loved the zany kind of planet heiress, like time-traveling dinosaur wizards. Yes, 
I'm yeah. I'm let's go. I don't even yeah. need, don't yeah. say anything else. Let's jump. So, <laughs> so yeah, I started building games sort of from the get go and I really left gaming in my twenties for a while. Mm. And weirdly that inspired my design a lot more than having stayed in gaming might have. I don't know. That's, that's a bit of a, that's a bit of like looking at the the past through the current lens. But what happened mm. was I, I found myself really feeling disconnected from gaming communities in my 20s. I, there was a lot of sort of hyper-violent, very often, mm. you know, it was a lot mm. of, I'll just be straight up about it. It was a lot of guys who had various emotional issues that they needed to work out and they were bringing those to the table instead of into therapy and not in positive ways. So there was a mm. lot of a lot of aggression, a lot of competition. It wasn't what I, you know, I was like, let's have fun. Let's tell a story together. And that wasn't, that wasn't the arena I was in. So I ended up being the one gamer designing games for people who'd never played them before. So, you know, people would be like, this was before Dungeons and Dragons kind of came back around and got popular again. So I was working with people and they'd be like, well, you want to play a game? What do you want to do? And I'm like, well, Okay, let me see. How can I build this so that it'll it'll yeah. make immediate intuitive sense and you'll get into it? So I spent a long time, about 10 years, doing that. And then kids brought it back. You know, I rolled a die in a class I was teaching on the south side of Chicago. I used to teach uh, Little Village Lawndale High School. I loved it there. I didn't want to leave, but I didn't blame my wife for wanting to leave the winters of Chicago. She was She was right. But I pulled out a 20-sided die for something in a class and, you know, some kids at the front got wide-eyed and they were like, do you play Mr. Lowe? Do you play Dungeons and Dragons? And I was like, classic. I was like, well, yeah. And they were like, can you teach us? And I was like, that was not the question that I was expecting as a follow-up. Something has changed in the landscape of popular culture. And it had. So yeah, after that, I was running after school games for gosh, you know, well over a decade and building things for kids and hacking things for kids and, you know, experimenting and turning it into an academic pursuit for some reason. Like, what a dummy. I, I really should have figured this out years ago. I feel like such a fool. It's something that happened because my son, he's eight now, he was seven at the time. His his campaign that I was running for the neighborhood kids with a game that I hacked together using minifigures, which was incidentally plane hopping with dragons. And yeah, hmm. Um it, it had to go online and I very quickly realized that this, this, the tools I had didn't work online, one, and the tools that existed wouldn't let me run the kind of game I wanted to run, two. And then three, that once we were online, there was all this uh, ability to work on the story together while we weren't in the room together, which generated so much more investment and engagement at the table when we came back. And then that turned into, all right, well, how do we structure this and, and track for academic growth and assess? And how do we, we keep, kids, um, keep kids incentivized to engage without demanding it? And that really sort of shifted the way that I design. It's good. <laughs> it's good. Yeah, it's good. So <laughs> no, I'm truly, I'm truly in awe because I've yet, I've thought about often like running games for kids, but I've not yet had the opportunity to do so. Oh gosh, you should. They're so much better than adults. Sorry, adults. <laughs> Grownups. You, so much easier to schedule. Grownups, uh, go, go watch a bunch of kids play and learn something because they're awesome. Yeah. Yeah. No, but it's true. I, uh, a lot of my, a lot of the last, 
maybe decade of my life. Mm. Yeah, maybe decade of my life. I, as like a short, short synopsis, I lived in Pittsburgh for about seven years mm. trying to work a real job, which was being a line mm. cook, which at the end of the day, at, oh, at this current day, I don't believe it's a real job. Yeah, it's tough and it's yeah. underappreciated and the systems around it uh, do not help the employee in any way, shape or form. Anyways, oh, but yeah, totally. I had, yeah, I had lost the, not lost, but the kid in me was muted pretty heavily for a long time. Mm-hmm. I, when I was in high school, I looked at like the... We, we had to do the career assessment thing where we had to look up jobs, see what yeah. the salaries were, and, like, just, like, make career decisions based on that. Yeah. Which is an awful way to do Horrible. To do no one should ever that. do that. No one. No one should not one time do that. No. And, you know, I was comparing being a game designer, like a game programmer, because, yeah. what was that? That would have been nine, or 2008, 2009. Yeah. And... That was when World of Warcraft got was starting to like really swell up. So I was playing like Burning Crusade and stuff. And I was like, man, this is cool. Yeah. And my dad was always way into video games. Like we had every next gen all the way up to the PS3, I believe. Uh-huh. And then we stopped collecting game consoles because game console wars are a, a crazy thing. Yeah. And a crazy marketing ploy. Yeah. And so ultimately I was driven away from being like wanting to be a game designer, a game programmer, Mm -hmm. a game artist, because, you know, I had a teacher every once in a while, like come over my shoulder and be like, well, why don't you check out some other, other work or like other jobs. Right. Because it was sort of like, that's not going to make you money. That's not going to be like a satisfying career for you. So the other things I like to cook, I like to act. And I went to school for like theater and dance. And then I went to school for management. And then coming now, as I make this podcast in my 30s, I get to a place where the kid in me is is alive again. I've I've come to accept the fact that I love games and that even more so, I love like the trad adventure game. Awesome. I love the going into a dungeon. I think so many people like kind of write that off as trite or tropey and like kind of want to like edge away from that. And I suppose that there are problematic pieces of that, that, that help with that decision. Like what you're talking about, the heroism sort of being a a toxic element and like solving all your problems with blade and hammer. Well, you know, I think it's, it's, it's up to like, it's the story you want to tell. And that's, what's important. And I think it's interesting that you even framed it as like, I've, I've let the kid in me out. I've admitted that I like games. Everyone likes games. And that's the thing that's so crazy. We've we've yeah. dismissed this amazing, compelling part of learning. Anybody who studies education will tell you that games are a huge part of learning. Storytelling is a huge part of learning. We are the stories we tell about ourselves. And games, mm-hmm. like books, are an interactive social way to have experiences that are real and transformative that happen without risk or danger that is immediate to ourselves, which is one of the reasons that adventure stories and stories about violence often are very compelling. They give people the opportunity to experiment with who they'd be in a moment of high stress and high intensity, right? And so that's a wonderful transformative Mm -hmm. experience. I have a blog on this um, 
which actually goes into some of the neuroscience that's coming out about how imaginary experiences have a similar impact on our neural architecture uh, to real experience, to lived experiences. So what happens at mm-hmm. your game table? And this is one of the reasons I, I'm pretty obsessed with the question of, you know, how to make a game that is the right game, right, for, for my kids and how to help them have the game they mm-hmm. want to have. It's because I'm giving them an experience that may change who they are. And as, as their mm-hmm. coach and facilitator, I have a huge responsibility to those kids to make it joyous and also to make it positive in its impact on mm-hmm. who they become. But yeah, like, it's so interesting to me that you were like, yeah, I mean, I finally admitted I like games. I'm like, hell yes, of course you do. Yeah. Everybody does. Yeah. Hallelujah. Like embrace that because play is how we learn. And it's interesting yeah. too to me that you mentioned that that struggle of, you know, I had certain things I liked and I had certain things I pursued, but I wasn't really sure how that led to a career. That's typical for so many students. I, I think that one yeah. of the nastiest things that we do to children, which I hate and I tell kids all the time, I'm like, if anybody ever asks you this, you don't have to answer. <laughs> and you're allowed to stick out your tongue and go, um, is what do you want to do when you grow up? Yeah. Um, and oh it's, God. It's such a horrible <laughs> thing. So, oh God, they have no idea, of dude. Of course. There's and, no way they can answer that well, question. Well, and the funniest part about that is you talk to almost anybody who's happy doing what they're doing. I'll guarantee you something. They're not doing what they thought they were going to do when they were a kid. Yeah. Never. Yeah. Because it's such a complex question and it's such a journey. And it also, it's this, you know, commodification of the idea of learning, right? Like, okay. I need to do a thing. So I need to learn to do that thing, right? Mm -hmm. No, Mm -hmm. that's not how learning works. Learning is a constellation of interrelated skills. Yes. You never know what, what you're going to end up doing because there are all these things you're learning along the way. And when you find the synergies between them and figure out a a place where all those, those abilities and and those skills come into play, that's going to be the thing that you end up falling in love with and doing for a career. So you're acting. Right. Absolutely. That's a part of, of game design because there's a element to tabletop design. That's, you know, foundational for that video game experiences. There's a lot there that you can learn about systems and structures. The very fact that you're aware of console wars means you've gotten to the nerdy point of understanding what you've been studying about games at a different level. Right? So Mm -hmm. there's, there's so much opportunity for all of us to learn amazingly productive and and useful things for ourselves and transformative things. If we just stop putting the expectation that it has to lead to an immediate paycheck right now for something. Yeah. 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 It's definitely needs to be in a state of exploratory. And that, that whole, that whole allegory was mostly meant to be like the, to the comment you had earlier of like, we should watch kids play. Mm. It's also the sense of like being open to shifting the lens. I think a lot of times are the little nuts and bolts that allow our lens to swivel becomes rusty over time. We don't oil it. We don't lubricate it. And then it doesn't shift. So then we can't perceive a new solution for something or we can't, we can't like re-angle the problem. And man, what an amazing analogy. I mean, well, yeah, I, well, to me, that's, that's so mind boggling. You know, I, I don't know. I love teaching. I don't know if that came mm-hmm. across yet, but uh, you know, people, I, I, so I've had a lot of master's students work with me to, to, to get their master's degree in education. And when folks come to, to work with me, I always ask them from the get go, okay, why do you want to do this job? And be warned 
there are only two right answers. <laughs> they look at me, mm-hmm. you know, obviously I'm doing that as, you know, I'm, I'm poking and they'll, they'll yeah, kind of give bit. me the raised, the raised eyebrow. And I'll say, don't worry. It's okay. But I I'm both joking, but I'm also not. And the only two mm-hmm. right answers that I'll accept are, I really like working with kids and they're great. And I think they're awesome. Or I really like who I am when I teach. Mm-hmm. Those are the two right answers. And the reason that those are the two right answers, and I always explain this, is if you tell me you love English, wonderful. That's great. You're not teaching English, you're teaching kids. Mm-hmm. And kids are going to mm-hmm. need things that are different from what you're into. And if you don't love the kids and aren't excited to work with them, then you're not going to be able to give them what they need. And that's fine. Go find an arena in which you can express what you, you can chase your true passion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the great thing about one of the many things I love about the career is it does keep you mentally flexible. You are, it is incredibly demanding to teach kids. You have to constantly be thinking about, okay, well, what do they need next? How do I help them get there? How did, how did today go? How can I make tomorrow go better? And that process makes you, I don't know, I've found it's very regenerative. I, I am so lucky to get the privilege of working with kids because they, they give me so much energy and ideas to really explore the world and, and, and learn. I mean, my son has been, it's been amazing, you know, getting to see the whole process, but it's, you know, you, 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 you get a different perspective on reality every day you work with kids. And that's a brilliant mm-hmm. gift to be able to receive. My, what I really find interesting too, is like the going against the grain of the textbook, like allowing for more modern exploration of uh, different sectors of education. The only reason I bring this up is what you were talking about made me think about my housemate who, who I mentioned earlier mm. does uh, theater education yeah. at a high school level. Yeah. High school level? I believe so. And recently, or last year in his curriculum, he introduced different countries of theater. Yeah. Which is not typical for the, you know, the standard curriculum yep. of like, you know, teach them some Shakespeare, yep. have them look at some like Broadway shit and like call it a day. You know, he introduced like Kabuki theater and sort of like African storytelling and stuff like that, just on like a basis of, of surface level knowledge. But it gets them interested in the sense that like, oh, America isn't the only place where like movies and plays happen. No right? kidding. Like, yeah. It's not the only place that storytelling occurs, even though it's like one of our largest commodities. Yep. And I just found that so fascinating because there is so much other world mm-hmm. out there. Mm-hmm. And often a lot of the like standard educations live in just like the American mindset. Like history is only American history because America is number one and the winner. And like, there is no need to know about how other people act in the world because it's not relevant. Don't, but I think, don't get me started. I, I uh, <laughs> will spend another, if you get me started, in this. well, so, you know, yeah. Should every single, yeah. <laughs> should there be a comparative religions course taught in every high school? Absolutely. Should there be a comparative world history course taught in it? Yes. Should there be electives for things like American history? but electives for every other uh, particular section of the world that you would like to learn about country of the world. Absolutely. Because you know, that type of, of parochial worldview, it's really outdated. This is part of 
you know, it's, it's part of the shift I think we need to make as a species is if we keep, we're, we're living as a global species. And it's one of the reasons I'm not a big fan of violent solutions to problems, because that's something that works great if you are very small and your impact is very small. You know, the single hero's quest sounds really heroic when it's one person against, you know, a particular local problem and there's swords involved, right? When, when it involves buttons and, you know, generational impacts for everyone, right? Problems like climate change and systemic racism, they don't get confronted or dealt with by the, the classic violent heroic mold. You can't punch a systemic oppression in the face. It takes these terrifyingly complex, nuanced solutions and a lot of talking and a lot of understanding. And um, cultivating that at the high school level requires exactly what your housemate is doing, making kids from an early age aware of just how vast and complex the world is and how many different approaches to reality there are so that they can work from a position of tolerance and acceptance. Yeah. And, you know, I think there is, and to bring this all back to the game design space, you know, there are so many people making an effort to bring in other experiences into the space as far as like trans identity related challenges or related celebrations, what RPGC is doing for Southeast Asian cultures and creations, Mm -hmm. you know, black creators, black American creators and African creators and people who are adding characters and settings that are related to their own oral traditions, their own mythologies, and like really, really getting it from the lens of a person who has like grown up on those stories mm-hmm. rather than a person who has done like a Wikipedia search and knows maybe like a surface level amount of knowledge about it, right? Including, you know, the Indian pantheon in their game or using like an Indian demon, uh, the Rakshasa like in D&D, right? Is not really a, yeah. you know, it's a surface level thing. It's not like they did the intent research of really understanding what they were putting into their medium. Right. So I love that there has been an element of five years. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you've got into the motherlands, you've got coyote and crow. There's amazing people doing amazing work to try to diversify the game space and make it more inclusive and, and create stories that are of import and impact for a large range of people. But it's interesting, you know, I was just having this conversation with my co-creator on Holdfast Station. I'm making a playlist. And so this is, you know, it's a sci-fi story, right? And it's a blue collar sort of proletariat sci-fi story. And I was building this playlist and the ways in which perception filters our expectations and the expectations of the audience for games is really Mm -hmm. interesting. So, you know, what, what is sci-fi, right? Well, classically, sci-fi is a very white male. I don't know. I heard a wonderful interview with Nnedi Okorafor, who wrote the Binti series and who's an incredible author. If you haven't read her stuff, run out and buy all of it right now. She writes, as a Nigerian-American, she writes very, very focused, thoughtful science fiction that is absolutely not what you expect. And it makes you sort of realize and question the lenses through which you view genre. And in making that playlist for Holdfast, you know, Mo and I had that conversation. Mo's black and he's like, yeah, you know, I, I'm not sure whether the songs that I would pick 
would be the ones that would be scanned by our audience as being science fiction. And I was like, I get that. And, you know, it's a relatively low stakes thing, adding a playlist, right, to a, to a, to a game. But at the same time, it sort of speaks to the fact that making the space inclusive and diversifying from a design perspective requires a lot, a lot of change at a larger level, right? Because you can create a game and try to sell it. That doesn't necessarily mean that it'll be bought until people are excited about it in the space. So I'm very excited for those shifts and hoping they keep, they keep happening and maybe at an accelerated rate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I would love to get to a space where we, I have, I have my own opinions about like who can and can't use a thing when it comes to like persons like heritage or ancestry in terms of like monetary ownership. Like I would love to be in a state. What that is trying to say is that like, I want to be in a state of sharing. I want to be in a state of like, not everyone can create every single game out there, nor should they, if they have that aspiration, because they may not have the tools or the experiences necessary. But I think it would be amazing if we got to a place where instead of manipulating someone's oral traditions or histories or connections for sake of like, warping it to earn money yeah ultimately capitalism things uh what if instead it was just like hey i heard this story about this one time and i would love to share it with you right like that's kind of how the journey of Mm. of knowledge sort of works like i heard a thing now it connects to me now i connect it to someone else yeah uh and i would just love it to be i don't know just kind of accepted to be shared like shared in a in a positive and like like a gift yeah, I think like here I'm I'm presenting this to you like to share as you move forward in life so that it helps your experience or something to that effect. Yeah, I think there's a there's a huge amount of of work to be done before something like that could be possible. And yeah. I think it's a very yeah. noble goal. But you know, I'm just thinking about so in my games online, my classes, I've mentioned how it's sort of like a a, a collaborative a living document, right? That the kids add to. And even just in finding, so I'm not you know, these are not games I'm selling. I'm selling myself as a teacher, but I'm not selling them as artifacts to others. Mm-hmm. So we mm-hmm. use, you know, Google searches to find art that's compelling and inspirational. And finding any kind of art within any genre where people of color are represented in a non-problematic way, even just finding anyone who's in that genre who is of color is it's it's a it's a process which requires some research because it's not easily or readily available because those spaces and those visual milieus have been primarily white and have mm-hmm. been dominated by cultural narratives that sort of disappear anybody who isn't. And so mm-hmm. like it's it's a lot of work at a larger scale to try to make that space feel really welcoming and open to all because currently, mm-hmm. you know, just as we were talking you know, and I'll loop this back to our discussion of how to create an open table, right? An inclusive table. And you mentioned, you know, you wish people could, you know, sort of sit down at the table and feel welcomed from the get-go. There are so many ways in which people are given messages about who belongs and who doesn't before they ever sit at the table. And until the art feels balanced, there's, there may be a reason that certain people don't feel like they've been invited. 
Mm. Um, and so it takes a, a conscious effort from everyone to attempt to create spaces and do a lot more listening to stories that are not sort of genre standard. So yeah, you know, Nnedi Okorafor writes brilliant novels. There's a million folks out there uh, writing amazing, compelling. I'm thinking of Children of B- Blood and Bone is another amazing series that I've read recently. There's there's so much powerful work in fantasy and sci-fi that's non-white. It's just a lot of people who have been raised on the genre tropes haven't looked into it. Black Wolf, Red Leopard is really good. Or sorry, Black Leopard, Red Wolf. Uh, sorry, I, I'm like also a book nerd. So, you know, you get me into love this it. stuff and I'll, get, I'll nerd hard. But yeah, so I think uh, creating a more open space for all creators and for all stories requires a real concerted effort from everyone to try to consume stories that are outside of, of the white canon. Yeah. I think that's going to be, I think that's going to be our beautiful note to sort of like resonate on for the top of the show here. Michael, I want to thank you for being with us today and having these in-depth conversations about some larger, uh, larger real world conversations. So and ideas. Would you once again, please give an outro for yourself of who you are, links for things so people can support you, support the work you do and get connected to those that you are happy to be connected with. All of these links that Michael will be sharing will be in the description for you to use listener. Thank you. Yeah. So I'm at luckoflegends.com. I'm also on Twitter under at lucklegends. Gosh, I think I officially have a Facebook page, although I, I, don't don't really I haven't really spent the time to make that work but yeah you can find my classes at luckoflegends.com you can find my blogs there and you can find my work a lot of my games that are for public consumption but are are not uh part of my class that's on uh luck of legends on itch and uh, please reach out I love one of the things that I've been so delighted by is that this has been such a warm and inclusive community. I've found a lot of wonderful people in story game spaces who are doing great work to try to make this space uh, a joyous, celebratory, game-focused storytelling uh, delight. And you're absolutely on that list. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> of course, of course. And feel free to go out and get uh, Star Sworn also over on storiesrpg.com. Ooh. It was a wonderful read. It shows a really cool stripped-down Forge in the Dark for those of our gearheads out there Mm -hmm. and just shows that you don't need position and effect to make a great game. So thank you, Michael. Thank you for listening. I learned a ton from Michael and I hope you did too. And we'll catch you next time. Say bye to the people, Michael. Bye to the people. Have a lovely day. (laughs) Bye-bye. Hey there, listeners. Thank you very much for taking the time to sit down and hang out with Michael and I. We really appreciate it. You can find links and resources down below in the show notes, such as getting in touch with Michael or other content with similar topics. Support Jeremy and the DYD podcast by reviewing the show or joining the community Discord server. Additionally, you can get ad-free early releases of episodes by donating to the DYD Patreon at patreon.com slash dydpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and remember that design is a marathon, so enjoy the journey and have a great day. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.